there, listener. Greetings from snowy Brooklyn. Gazing out the window, watching the snowflakes fall. I'm really excited for you to get to listen to this episode. I'm always excited when I put out a new episode. I just really enjoy the process. But Dr. Darsha Narvaez, to me, feels like a next level conversation. And I really hope that you get out of this as much as I got out of getting to do this interview. Dr. Darsha is a professional psychology at Notre Dame, but that does not do justice to the scope and breadth and depth of her work, which we dive into in the episode of, of her as an interdisciplinary thinker and researcher who really focuses on morality and flourishing and what it means for a human being and human beings in relationship to thrive. Specifically, she looks at indigenous worldviews of thriving, uh, which we dive into in this episode, but not just from the adult perspective, but how do you raise a child into a flourishing culture? How do you help evolve a psychologically stable, emotionally stable uh, human being that's able to contribute from early childhood. And we get into the weeds in this episode. We talk about flourishing, child rearing, development, neuroplasticity, um, epigenetic expression, uh, all kinds of, of ways that this weaves together. And it was such a pleasure to interview her and to learn from her. And I hope that you enjoy her perspective. And I also hope that you get a lot out of her perspective because there's so much there. Links to her bio, her research, uh, to Evolved Nest, all in the show notes. Please dive in because it feels good. My introduction to her was reading a recent blog post from Psychology Today where she talks about the indigenous worldview of thriving and how different it is from the academic, Western, typically white, typically male, typically upper class perspective. And, And there's so much to offer there that I think we can relate to as people and as those who are seeking a different paradigm in terms of well-being. So enjoy. Dr. Darsha. Darsha Narvaez, Dr. Darsha, uh, welcome so much to Better Than Fine. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here with you. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, Well, digitally coming anyway. Uh, I want to kick off by just asking you to introduce yourself, your work, uh, and, and share with us your story of how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, it's a complicated, long, and twisted story. Those are the best uh, ones. I'll, <laughs> I'll give you a few highlights. Um, I think I've been interested in ethics and morality as uh, from the earliest memories I have, because we lived in different countries when I was growing up. Our home base was Minnesota, but we lived in Spanish-speaking countries, uh, and my dad was from Puerto Rico. And I would see kids my own age. Uh, ragged and uh, hungry looking, selling gum on the corner, you know, that they're trying to make their money for food for the day, right? And then I come back to Minnesota and see all this overabundance of materialism, and I just couldn't, I cried for those kids, and um, I couldn't understand why the world was so unjust. So I've had that seed of worry and concern and you know the spark of you know what your heart is telling you which we want to follow uh that's always been in my um in my heart in my mind but i uh my psychology career my phd was my uh seventh career so (laughs) it took me a while to get back to and then within my uh, my uh so i was a music major in college and i uh, taught in the philippines uh, classroom music, and and then I um, went to seminary, so I was very interested in the bigger questions of life, realized I really wasn't a Lutheran, because it was a Lutheran seminary, after I learned about the doctrines, like, ah, oh, I don't believe this, <laughs> so I grew up with it, you know, uh, but it got me interested in grad school, but before that, I had my own business, and I 
uh, was in, worked with the Hispanic community in Minnesota, and then I had my uh, I was invited to be a middle school Spanish teacher. Uh, so I did that at a prep school, and in the middle of that, I started my PhD in moral development at the University of Minnesota. And so uh, I'll leave off some other details there, <laughs> but <laughs> I at first did lab studies and did moral text comprehension. You know, kids uh, supposedly at the time, William Bennett was saying, uh, the education secretary, secretary of education saying, oh, just read moral stories to kids. They'll get it. You know, it's, they're magical, you know, all this kind of thing. And mm. so, we, hmm, really? <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> so it turns out, no. Nope, <laughs> that ain't how it works. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we studied that. And uh, so I was doing text comprehension. Well, I'll give, I'll give you a reason. Um, it's too complicated. I, so I was doing lab studies, but they hired me and put me in a curriculum instruction department. And after I was reaching tenure, they said, you got to do curriculum instruction publishing. It's like, really? All of a sudden? And uh, that's because I had more teacher education, teacher experience than my colleagues in the departments. Um, so luckily, I, I was able to, with the Minnesota Department of Education, get a million dollar grant for character education in the schools there. Uh, federal government had a million dollars for every state. So I was doing that. Uh, I ended up going to um, Notre Dame, though, because my husband died there, and they had been trying to get me to come. And it, when I got to Notre Dame, no education department, so um, a psychology department. And I tried to work with the schools. No Child Left Behind came in, kind of shut all the doors there. And then I started, I always read widely, and I realized that morality. I'd been studying, you know, reasoning and thinking about it. And I realized from my interdisciplinary reading that it really is very neurobiological and the early life experience matters. Yeah. You know, that attachment is about engraving the brain with how you're going to deal with the social world, you know, and how intelligent, social, emotionally intelligent you are and how flexible you are. And so I, I started to then to write about parenting and then we've been studying that what we call the evolved nest in the last 10 years or so. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry. I No, <laughs> don't kind of loopy, but anyway. No yeah. need for sorry, because I think, and I think anybody who's a regular listener to this show knows that I think that these, these long intersecting pathways are part of how we find whatever our gift is meant to be, right? Our contribution. Um, and, and I hear themes of, of morality, of education, of a huge interest in the well-being of children. Um, I know it wasn't in the questions that we spitballed to one another, but I'd love for you to just share, since you mentioned Evolve Nest, can you just explain what that project is and, and kind of the underpinnings of it? Right. And it's related to the other questions you had um, suggested we talk about. So, and it's related to um, realizing that we don't really know things if we stay in our own silos in one discipline. The truth is really across disciplines. And the Evolved Nest is a transdisciplinary discovery, essentially, that it puts together ethology and anthropology and clinical and developmental sciences uh, to realize who we are and how to, how to get us towards thriving, how to shape our trajectories to so we flourish so we become our unique selves so that we have our unique contribution to the world and what we know then from these disciplines is that we are social mammals and social mammals millions of years ago 20 to 40 million years ago established a set of intensive parenting practices to shape the optimal development of their offspring and our practices that our species developed in, because we're social mammals are almost identical to those. We, we slightly adjusted a couple of them, but uh, so you can see that the evolutionary processes are about conserving most things really. You know, you don't compete, hardly anything changes generation to generation. We, you know, we share 99.9% of our genes with one another and it's just slight alterations generation to generation. So we're, we're conserving over generations and, and evolved mass is what we conserved for optimizing our young. And we know how important it, and we know what it looks like because the anthropologists have found these same practices all over the world, in nomadic foraging communities and others, but that's our a presumed type of society in which humans evolved 
uh, our brains evolved to, to be optimally functioning uh, in ourselves. So you can see what these practices are from that. And now clinical neuroscientists, sciences are showing us how important each of these are. Uh, and so all these pieces are coming together to uh, emphasize the importance of early life experience. And now people are talking about early life uh, stress, EOS, or early toxic stress, you know, and how bad that is for later health and well-being. And so the Evolved Nest is, it provides the buffer for any kind of genetic uh, fingerprints or, that you have, because when you're uh, loved and nurtured, it doesn't matter what your genes are so much. It's just so in these uh, traditional societies, you see very narrow range of personality that they're all cooperative, generous. You know, there's slight, the, the differences are so minimal compared to what we see. We see so much psychopathology, which for me is related to the evolved nest being degraded. So what is that nest? So it's soothing perinatal experiences. So that means soothing gestation. The mom's not so very stressed during pregnancy. Uh, the birth experience is soothing for mom and baby. So the baby's welcomed with uh, warmth and um, not separated from mom, not, uh, doesn't undergo painful procedures, immediately put on, uh, is able to move up the mother's belly and stimulate the nipple of the breast. This is what babies do when they're left in, in natural conditions, stimulate that uh, the milk to come uh, and talk about you know self-efficacy. Oh my God, <laughs> that's the way to start it, right? <laughs> uh, and so that soothing uh, perinatal experience. Then there's breastfeeding, which is always a shocker to, to learn what our species uh, length of breastfeeding is, and that's on average four years. <clears throat> so that means the range is larger than that. Uh, yeah, yeah. The minimum is two, uh, but that's only because one group does two and everyone else <laughs> mostly does four. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and so uh, the um, why, you know, why could this be so important? Because the milk is providing all the immunoglobulins to build the immune system, which takes maybe age till age five, uh, maybe six to get to full adult capacities and is providing all the, the nutrition to build the brain properly, the neurotransmitters and everything else. I mean, it's so complicated. We yeah. can't understand breast milk. Seeding the gut biome, yes, seeding gut, so much, yep. so much attachment and development. There's, there's so yes. many layers to it. And we are, I believe, are just scratching the surface of understanding yeah. that. That's right. That's right. So that's uh, soothing birth experiences, breastfeeding, touch then, Babies expect to be carried around and being on in someone's arms or on someone's body all 24-7, really. And that's, we find, you know, from the animal studies, yeah, it's important because otherwise things get dysregulated when they're apart from the body of a, of a caregiver because babies are born with only 25% of the adult size brain volume. And so, so much grows in those first few years. They also look like fetuses of other animals until about 18 months, you know, when the, the brain plates close because they're expecting the brain to grow and the brain grows from breastfeeding and touch. So you want a lot of that to have a big brain. You're going to be smarter. The myelinization is better with breastfed kids, all sorts of things. Um, so touch, uh, moving touch too, you know, they expect you to be walking around gathering food. <laughs> uh, then there's multiple adult caregivers uh, who are responsive to the needs of the baby, especially. So keeping baby optimally aroused while all this growth is going on, because if you stress that baby, what happens is the growth slows down. And if it's extreme stress, cortisol levels get so high, they melt synapses in the brain, right? It's like, whoa, you're just, you're now creating psychopathology right there, right? I'm so trying to remember where I read about this, but it was also a, a an insinuation, I don't think we've proved any kind of direct causality, but it was correlation of that with people on the spectrum, um, instances of, you know, mild autism and, and where we see developmental delays from acute stress and early childhood development. Right. And uh, autism is a, is a outcome, uh, set of symptoms with lots of causes. So yeah. that is likely one of them. Uh, so then there's, uh, um, positive climate. So you feel welcome and you like you belong, you have a 
positive impact on others and they want you to be there with them, companionship. Uh, and then there's, I'm trying to remember all my things. Uh, play. Well, we're also going to link to Evolve Nest in the show notes. So if we don't hit them all, oh, okay. no, no pressure, no okay, pressure. Good. They can learn more. <laughs> I remember three more. So uh, so there's nine that we talk about at evolvenest.org. That's where you can get more information. Uh, so another one's play, self-directed free play with multiple aged playmates, right? Mm. So in our ancestral context, people are playing all the time. They're bantering, they have you know, rituals or ceremonies where it's a lot of playing that all the women get together and, and kind of maraud the, the, the community and then men do it. And so it keeps the balance of, of complementarity of the genders. Uh, and there's lots of playing, just loving playing and um, enhancing each other's well-being, which is a common way of uh, interacting physically and um, socially. And anyway, lots of ways. And then there's nature connection and nature immersion. So being in, in nature, that's where you're playing, that's where you're living and feeling uh, connected to the animals, the place, this is our place on the earth and feeling like they're community members. You're part of a bio community and you don't have this sense of superiority and you know control and domination that the Western world has created in us. And separation. Yes, right? separation, right. Which is I think causing uh, the root part of the root causes of all the devastation we're undergoing now. And then the last one is healing rituals, he routine healing. So having regular trance dancing or uh, singing or whatever it is so that you let go of the grudges, you let go of the um, any resentments and you you know you play, act, act them out or whatever it is, every society is a little different. So um, that's where our heritage is for enhancing human potential. And I could not have staged us a better lead into the bulk of what I had invited you to talk about, though this is such a, an important extension of it, which is this concept of the indigenous worldview, the indigenous concept of thriving, and how it really is the, our roots, our, our being. And I don't even want to say roots because that diminishes the fact that it's also a big chunk of the tree, the branches, and all the leaves. Um, and then, so you recently had an article in, in Psychology Today, and that was uh, how I was introduced to you, um, was through you sharing that article. And it was, it starts with pointing out that most of our Western conversations around the science of well-being, the science of human thriving, these are Western models, primarily through white industrialized societies, educated men, mostly, uh, in a lot of what we read and what we see. And you point out in the article that these are very limited models for what to us probably seem like obvious reasons, but do you mind just talking about that limitation in itself and also these, uh, this concept of, of another model that isn't really other, it's actually our whole and our root and our, our, our launch point? Well, I think it's important to understand uh, what Western civilization has done. I think it's changed the brains and the expectations and the baselines for humans, uh, what's normal functioning. I talk about shifted baselines, slipped baselines for how we think children should be treated, uh, what we expect of children. So we, we minimize their needs as babies and you know, oh, you gotta, you gotta make them independent, you're gonna spoil them, blah, blah, blah. So the, the denial of parental instincts to nurture that child is part of the culture, which leads then to lowered expectations for who they are. Oh, we expect them to have tantrums. We expect them to be aggressive and self-centered and, and all this stuff, which isn't what you find in these other societies. So <clears throat> we create the problem that we think we're trying to solve, right? And then you have adults who have you know, they don't think very openly or open-heartedly, open-mindedly because of this pattern, this trajectory they've experienced. And then they create the culture then that's very narrowed down. And, and so when, you're, uh, when you don't provide the nest and exactly what the psychopathology will be of what you denied is unpredictable because the babies grow at different rates and you don't know what was being developed that you now undermined from letting them cry themselves to sleep or something. Um, but anyway, so what happens is you create a society that's very narrow-minded because you lost your connection. You as a baby were 
broke, uh, your parents broke the continuum of care. And so you felt you're suddenly alone and you have no idea, you can't think about it because you're a baby, but you have no, the, the threads of connection and bonding that are supposed to be there that you see everywhere else, except in the mostly Western civilizations or civilizations where you punish people. Um, then then you, you have this one person psychology you develop and, and it's all about me and you, you just don't know what you're missing. You don't know the other parts of the intelligent uh, human being that you, you could be. And part of this is the right hemisphere under development. Helen Shaw has done great work integrating all the research on early experience and, and brain function. And he shows that in the first couple of years, right hemisphere is scheduled to grow more rapidly than the left hemisphere. And the right hemisphere is about self-regulation. It's about, the, uh, and it's, uh, things are more governed early on <clears throat> for self-regulation by the right hemisphere. And then it gets more complicated. So when we talk about right hemisphere, we're talking about that early life and it, it has the roots while the vagus nerve is right governed initially. And the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve that innervates all the major systems of the body. And uh, it's required for compassion, for health, uh, for immunity. I mean, all sorts of things are you know, affected by whether that nerve works well or not. And so Alan Shore has shown that when you don't provide that responsive care that I'm talking about, um, the baby just doesn't develop the things, the, the, the smooth cooperation, all the things that we'll talk about. Uh, so um, anyway, so I think what the Western world doesn't realize what it doesn't know. So part of this is the left brain and the studies of the, that I think are more reliable are where the one side of the brain or the other is numb. And then you see what that side of the brain typically prefers. And left brain likes things that are static, dead, categorizable, does not perceive life and living beings and relationships and nuance and complexity. It's very linear and logical. And so the West has been governed by that in part. Ian McGilchrist has a great book called The Master and His Emissary where he goes through a lot of the research, it's a very fat book. And then he applies it to the Western world. And um, so when the left brain's in charge, it means the brain is not integrated you're not using your full capacities, but in part because that right hemisphere has been underdeveloped in when you don't provide the nest. And the Western world doesn't provide the nest. Um, Europe's better than us. USA is like the worst place to raise a baby in the <laughs> world. And so here we are, we have been dysregulated adults. We have adults who fall in all sorts of insecure attachment and we fall more easily into uh, conspiracy beliefs and Oh, and all sorts of things go wrong. It's so complicated how many things go wrong. It's, well, uh, and even if we don't look at the micro of, you know, we're, we're this episode will go up toward the end of January, but now we're in this micro moment between the attack on the Capitol and the confirmation of our new president. And, and if we zoom out to more macro, we're in a world that increasingly needs collaborative, creative thinking, um, a lot of forethought into a potential future, major need for problem solving when it comes to our climate and ecology. And, and the narrow left mind is not the place that those collaborative creative processes take place. So at, at the very least of what you're talking about, which I think you're talking about so many incredible large concepts, but at the very least, we're raising our children in such a way that makes them more close-minded, less creative, less adaptable, and less prone to um, collaborative problem solving, which is something we desperately need as a society. That's right. Even and if everybody argues about everything else, we can agree about that. And let me say one more thing about that. Now, Please. Boys need more of it. Boys mature uh, more slowly. They have less built-in resilience. And so they need more nurturing. They need more breast milk, more play more touch and we give them less. And so you end up then they have to rely on their survival systems, their dominance submission uh, systems that, that we inherit from our primate relatives. And so we start to look more like primates and we think, and some Westerners think, yeah, it's a dog eat dog world. That's just the way it is. You know, Male dominance, that's the way it is, patriarchy. 
And that's not it. That's because we've undercared for our children. And then you get, you can't, you know, you just miss out. It's like this big hole in your head, your body, you know, this is all embodied knowledge that we, we should be developing. And we, we under, you know, under support the child's embodied intelligence, their intuitions, and then send them to school and drum in all this information as if that's a good life, as if that's knowledge, as if that's wisdom. That's far from it. The Native American chiefs, when they, you know, their, their children were kidnapped and, and sent to Christian boarding schools. And they, they were appalled, of course, that when they came back, they didn't know anything. They couldn't find their way home if they were out in the forest. They didn't know how to live on the earth. And so that's what we've done. We've created people who don't know how to live on the earth. And so they destroy it because they don't feel it. They don't feel connected. They don't understand it. Doesn't matter because I don't see it. I don't hear it. I don't feel it, right? That's yeah. the kind of um, devastation the Western civilization at its worst has created. We are big fans of embodied wisdom on this show. Um, you know, personal anecdote, I, I grew up in the Adirondacks of upstate New York. Uh, my grandfather barely finished the fifth grade because he had to take over the family business. Uh, you know, they're salt of the earth style people. And he has always referred to that thinking that you're describing as the educated idiots. The people who are so disembodied from their connection that they, they don't know which way is north. How could they possibly, you know, be of any use in the world right. yeah so i we are tiptoeing around this set of ideas that i i think it's time to just dive into this idea of what is this concept of uh indigenous worldview an indigenous thriving individual like what do those what do those ideas mean um because so much of what you just unpacked leads to this concept of the adult that understands play, that understands connection, that can look for these creative solutions. Like share, share those things with us. Let's dive in. Well, the indigenous worldview uh, can be contrasted uh, as the, the opposite almost of what we assume is normal now. Robert Redfield, a social cultural anthropologist pointed out after much study that there really were only two worldviews. Uh, one is the one we know, where we perceive the cosmos to be fragmented, disenchanted, uh, amoral. And the other view is the indigenous, what we call the indigenous view. And that is where you, where you understand the cosmos to be alive, sentient, moral, uh, sacred. And, and again, those, that indigenous worldview and those kind of conceptions are rooted in the right hemisphere's capacities. And again, we've undermined them. So uh, it makes no sense. The left hemisphere goes, oh, that's posh, just posh. That's ridiculous. That's, that's, that's woo-woo. It's woo-woo nonsense. <laughs> yeah, that's because the left brain doesn't know very much. And that's it thinks it knows everything. That's where Ian McGilchrist's uh, title, the master is the right hemisphere. The emissary goes out to all the lands and it starts to think to see how they're doing. But he starts to think he's in charge. That's the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere thinks it's in charge. And so psychology is full of experiments and, and interpretations and methods and writings that assume that, right? That the rational mind, that's the best thing about being a human being, you know, oh, we're better than all those animals out there that are so stupid and uh, nature's dead, all this stuff, <laughs> inert. <laughs> that's the left hemisphere can't perceive. So that's a, a unintegrated brain. The left hemisphere is taking over too much. And so we're depressed and we're, you know, disconnected because we don't have our full capacities going. <laughs> Yeah, that limited, limited scope, limited ability. Um, so you identify uh, in your writing that there's 12 characteristics of this thriving indigenous individual in this ecosystem, right? This connected ecosystem. Can you share what those, those concepts are? Yes, and 12 is just like, I mean, there's more. Oh, um, go nuts. Please, well, <laughs> no, was the I mean, number I could find in your writing, so I know, but something. these are just the ones we've identified. If you go in and, and live there, yeah. as E. Richard Sorensen did, that he's got a great paper called, um, pre, I think it's called Pre-Conquest Consciousness, uh, but you can pull out probably more, but these are the ones that others have pulled out 
and um, that I've pulled out from other writers. So yes. So, and do you want me to already separate them from what's missing in the uh, typical positive psychology lists? Should I talk about them that way first? Yeah, sure. I mean, it feel okay. feel free because I think even for the people not trained in positive psychology who are listening, I'm sure that they have a, at least a passing interest or they wouldn't be listening to the show. So yeah, right. please. So I think uh, the ones that overlap with what uh, Western psychologists have identified would be inner happiness. Although um, in the indigenous view, this includes childlike glee, which I think, you know, the West, the, the ego kind of doesn't want to be childlike, you know, it's childish. I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> So inner happiness, vitality, and the description that John Young gives us, he's uh, from Eight Shields. He's studied and, and uh, he does all sorts of intervention to help people get connected, especially nature connection all over the world. Uh, but he identifies vitality as an abundance of electricity in the body. Mm. You don't usually look at that, but you can yeah, say that's very different as, as a personal trainer who is also, uh, you know, positive psychology trained. The way that positive psychology talks about vitality is one of my like pet peeve hot buttons because it's very like John Rady, you're increasing your BDNF, go for walks, you know, do this much hit to get this, you know, physiological adaptation. And I'm like, that is, that is telling people to eat chocolate for magnesium and not the taste. Um, <laughs> so I love this idea of vitality is like, I'm, I'm percolating extra prana. Yeah. And let me point out that this list is from observation. So when you go to these societies, what do you see? You see inner happiness, childlikely. You see vitality, this abundance of wow, energy. You see autonomy, each person following their own impulses. You see sense of humor focused on human foibles. So this, um, that kind of humor, not the put down humor. Mm -hmm. Uh, outstanding memory and senses, uh, which may not be part of, I put it as uh, overlapping with the Western view, but I'm not sure it is. Uh, because, you know, the, the anthropologists tell us that the um, nomadic foragers have amazing memories. They can learn a language and then say, well, doesn't help. Learn to write, for example. You know, oh, let's write. Okay. And Done. to me, that dovetails so deeply with that same concept of vitality, right? That vitality is also an aspect of longevity and is not something that at least we can we put in that model of thriving. You know, if we talk about like Seligman's PERMA, right? That's not, we're not talking about longevity and the quality of that life. And so yeah. often in the less we're just talking about like, ah, you survive, but we're not talking about, can you still recite your childhood phone number and full address when you're 93? Um, so it's yeah. interesting to me, because in my head, I think of that as a subset of vitality that we're not talking about. Right. That's cool. And I think we get, uh, I have one of my pet peeves is resilience, like resilience to bounce back from trauma, right? Uh, but look, what you know you graduated from high school yay that's resilience right it's like that's getting back to zero you're not yeah that's not human potential no that's 100 you know <laughs> oh wait well that's the name of the show is is from that idea where like so often it's like oh getting back to zero is oh i'm fine fine <laughs> is not the marker we're shooting for yeah, right. yeah like mind on that and then one more that I think overlaps, and then there's a bunch that don't, uh, is connection to spirit. I think um, that peak experiences kind of um, emphasis is, is that. Then there's a bunch that I don't think, and maybe you'll correct me, uh, are part of the positive psychology lists. Uh, one is a quiet mind. Ah, can I tell you a fun story about that? Yes. So, uh, I was in the class that graduated in 2020 from Penn's positive psychology program. And so in the fall of 2019, um, forgive my faulty memory, <laughs> uh, that I don't recall who the guest speaker was, but they were talking about um, Western versus Eastern models of positive experience. Like what is a positive experience? What's positive emotion? And, and we were talking a bit about cross-cultural models and, and well-being. And Marty Seligman pipes up that um, the Western 
ideals are, are these energized ideals, these peak experiences ideals, and that um, they're much more difficult to attain than the Eastern ideals are all these like calm, quiet ones. And the meditators in the room, we all kind of harumphed. But nobody, so then there's this moment of pause where nobody wants to tell Martin Seligman, the founder of you know, the great poobah of positive psychology, that he's wrong. And I'm like, fine. And I raise my hand and I'm like, you are, you are incorrect. Have you ever tried to just sit and do nothing for 40 minutes with a quiet mind? Like that takes effort if you are constantly overstimulated in a Western culture, like that you're, you're striving for the top of the mountain. And, and it was really interesting to see his assumption that a quiet mind uh, wasn't aspirational in some way in our culture when so it, it seems so obvious to me that it is. Wow. <laughs> there so you go. It, <laughs> so in this list, um, it must be said too that they don't try, they don't sit there and try to be, you know, do their 40 yeah. minutes. Uh, this is just what happens when you grow up in that kind of society. These are the natural outcomes. So you have a quiet mind, you, you're at, you access, which means you access your unique genius, right? You're very attentive to what's happening uh, and you have uh, unbridled creativity based on a ability to integrate your senses. So emotional presence, so all those things are part of that. And which I think stretches a bit the Western, at least the Western psychology view. Another one is being fully alive. Can you talk more about that? <laughs> talk more about that. Yeah, so, so uh, the way John Young uh, the, the defines it is that you're aware of the sacredness of life mm. and all of life, you know, that life. So it's that indigenous worldview of sacredness. You're just tuned into that and you have a sense of awe, respect and wonder just being alive. Well, I think there's something to be said that many Westerners, I don't want to say all, it's too blanket, would hear fully alive and they assume that is something about your intrinsic experience, right? Like, oh, my my internal aliveness. Whereas this is a statement about the, the existence as a whole is fully alive. Yes. That it's an integrated experience outside of oneself. It does make me think a bit about um, Scott Barry Kaufman's book, Transcend, and Maslow's unpublished work about self-transcendence and how we've really lost that. Um, I know I had asked you to share the story of, of Maslow's inspiration for some of that work, if you want to take a tangent. Well, all I know is what uh, Kaufman writes, writes yeah. right, about how he was visiting the Blackfoot tribe when he was trying to puzzle through his theory and that he got inspired by the pyramid that they have, which is a little uh, the image. Um, but I don't know, it doesn't seem to be much more than that. They, they had a reversal of the pyramid compared to his. So self-actualization, it would be at the bottom first. Yeah. But the pyramid isn't even Maslow, so. Yeah, I know, it's just a marketing point. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it was more that so many people put Maslow in that psychology canon and to have learned that his inspiration for this idea of an actualized, integrated human whose needs are met in a way that they then can contribute fully to their community and, you know, in, in their unique expression of self, that that didn't come from his textbook, Learning that came <laughs> from an integrated experience with a culture that lived it. That's right. That's right. From an indigenous culture that lived it. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, we have a few more, don't we? Yes. Uh, let me just yeah. say one thing. Our, our US uh, constitution, the framers were also uh, impressed, inspired by Native Americans. The Iroquois. There were democracies, yeah. And there were democracies all over the place in the yeah. Americas uh, yes. before the Europeans showed up. So they got inspiration from them. Yeah, anyway, thank you. Yeah, uh, another one is honesty. Truthfulness is practiced and expected at every, for every age. So the young children's, whatever they say is taken to heart, taken seriously. So there's no deception, which is assumed to be normal by Western psychologists, which always shocks the Native Americans. <laughs> they, they, you know, the Native American chiefs were uh, commented about how how dishonest these people were. They kept breaking the treaties, for example, right? And they thought, boy, they must be mentally ill. 
Uh, <laughs> that's not what people do. And they had ceremonies for them. <laughs> well, and that seems to call give some callback to your morality. I, it, it's funny, my, my brain went to morality play, but it was morality allegory uh, studies. And this idea that morality is not something we learn necessarily through a recitation of a story, but through a cultural experience. Right. Although that's not how morality is assumed by the adults in the Western world. They think you have to learn the precepts, right? And, and follow, believe, you know, Christian beliefs, believe the right thing and then follow the belief and then you'll be saved, you know, that kind of strange belief system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, then another one is build habits at will. So we'll talk about that. So that means that the, and this is something Darwin pointed out for humanity's moral sense that they were because they're part of that moral sense is uh, feeling social pleasure which you see in other social mammals um, the ability the interest in, in concern for the opinion of others and so you have to build habits to fit in and that's something that you know you can see that when something needs to be done the new habit can be started more easily another one is know-how for getting along in the particular landscape. Every landscape is different. Uh, and so the land ethic is about that Aldo Leopold discussed uh, is actually what you see in all these uh, First Nations uh, that they treat the landscape uh, in a way that helps it flourish. And you can't do that if you bring your one way of doing things and then apply it everywhere, which the Europeans tend to do. <laughs> you know, that's what they, that's how we got the Dust Bowl. <laughs> Yeah. European ways of, of treating the land, the prairies, which didn't work for the prairies, which destroyed them. Yeah, so treat treat the land in the way the land should be treated, as yeah, opposed no, to pick it up and drop it, whatever you think should be done there. Right, and that's, that's hard for Westerners, because the, part of the way you learn to treat the landscape is you pay attention to what the landscape tells you, yeah. which happens through dreams, visions, uh, observation, and that you know, it's kind of like, oh no, woo woo again. <laughs> <laughs> but observation take, well, and I'm, I've got two thoughts here. First off is observation takes time and we don't want to take our time. We want to go, 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 results driven. Mm. Yeah. Um, but observation is a foundational, you know, scientific method, right? Learning right. for observation. But it used we, to be the method. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it does make me think of, uh, of course, I, I, was, I was hoping the book was sitting right here. And of course, it's in the other room because um, I can't think of the author's name of Braiding Sweetgrass when she talks about um, take, take only what you need and never more than half whenever harvesting uh, any kind of natural crop and the intentional dropping of seeds as you would collect so that you were reseeding not only for the ecosystem sus sustainability, but also for your own future. Uh, honorable and, harvest. Yes, yes, thank you. I couldn't think of her name or the concept. Robin Wall Kimmerer. Thank yeah. you, thank you. It's a beautiful book. Uh, I will put it in the show notes. Yeah, my, uh, my book, uh, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom, won the, uh, from 2014, it won the William James Book Award from APA. But I found her book right when I was finishing it. So I was, oh, gotta add this in there. So I, it, that book, the process of writing that book brought me to the importance of indigenous wisdom. Oh, yeah. It's the only way we're going to be moral. <laughs> so, all right, one more for that's uh, on the list of the individual characteristics, and that is ecological attachment, which means a relational respect for nature. And that's, we did an experiment that was published this past June where we tried to help college students develop an ecological attachment over three weeks. So every day they picked out a, um, a activity to do that day. Uh, there was a couple of conditions. And um, for example, for the ecological attachment condition, it was pay attention to the trees as you that you walk by today. Uh, acknowledge the tree, <laughs> acknowledge the trees. Uh, or pay attention to the clouds or whatever it is. So they're in the moment paying attention to the natural world and their ecological empathy went up after three weeks of doing that compared to a conservation condition. But Has anyway, that study so, been published yet? Yeah, it was published in June, Eco-Psychology. Uh, I will link to it. Um, 
and in and in such a short time span too three weeks is to me feels short for an intervention right. do you know if it was a lasting shift for them yeah we don't know um how long it lasted um both groups the conservation group was uh, their activities were uh, turn off the water where you're brushing your teeth <laughs> like stuff some of that uh both of them went up in ecological mindfulness but only the uh the um, ecological attachment group went up in empathy yeah so they care so the mindfulness is like yes i'm aware but not yeah. necessarily the sense of identification and, and care and and you know the desire to connect right well this kind of dovetails nicely to one of the other questions we had which was the idea that some of our cultures and our society, especially those who have more advanced educations in science, living in this idea that if science hasn't proven it, maybe it's not real, this kind of woo-woo concept. Um, and this to me feels like a perfect example as somebody who grew up hunting and camping and getting muddy and playing outside, like of course brushing my teeth is not gonna inspire me in the same way as walking in the park is going to. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this concept of like sciencyness is is counter to the indigenous worldview and and some of the like labeled woo-woo things that we've been talking about today. Well, I think uh, the indigenous perspective um, and practices are very scientific. It's just a different kind of science. It's native, what Greg Cajete calls native science, and that includes. Um, paying attention, to, it's interdisciplinary. You're always paying attention to how the manner in which you act and you have deep observation about what what uh, this animal is like or these plants are like and how, how you affect them and you take elder wisdom to guide you because they have had the, the accumulation of observation and previous generations knowledge. And, and so science there is more about the way you live your life it's not just a little bit of information in the left hemisphere I can do something with and manipulate. Uh, it's uh, it's a holistic and includes art and music and uh, the respectful relationship. How am I going to be respectful now in this moment with wherever I am? When I'm walking outside, am I paying attention to whether there's an ant under that could I could step on? Ooh, don't want to do that, right? So you're always attentive. You're walking on your ancestors too when you're walking on the sidewalk or the road. <laughs> Every, there's ancestors everywhere and there's relationships, there's kin everywhere. So how are you going to act in a way that respects them and helps them flourish? And represents them too. Yeah, and that, oh, that's, we didn't talk about the uh, relationship. Well, you can now, please. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we jump around, but, but yeah, go, please. Yes, that's okay. Um, so I had two lists. I had the individual characteristics, which kind of, as we discussed, kind of overlap with this relational aspect. But there's the individual in relationship aspects, which are more heavily emphasized or apparent in the indigenous First Nations, small band hunter-gatherer communities. So one is the enjoyment of being with others. So you enhance each other's pleasure uh, through play and jokes and songs and dance, and you 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 raise the happiness of the group just by the way you interact. And part of this is smooth cooperation. And that's all right hemisphere embodied cognition that you learn from being carried around all the time. And everyone loves babies. So they try to make the baby laugh. And, and then the baby learns how to signal, you know, tactily and, and to also help others laugh. And, and so it just becomes this uh, party. <laughs> Life is a party. <laughs> well, this reminded me. So I remember reading this and in the moment being like, oh, I have so many conversations with uh, clients, people I'm coaching, people I'm working with about introversion, extroversion, their personal balance, their need for themselves to be alone versus connected, how exhausting connection is. And what struck me immediately reading this was an idea and I, I want to be really careful with how I phrase this because I know some of the introverts, I don't want to offend anyone uh, or turn them off from the ideas. But do we find examples of introversion in the way that we talk about it in the West, where being around other people is just exhausting and, and not enjoyable? No, don't find it. She's shaking her head too. Well, you can't hear the audio. She is very lightly frowning and shaking her head. <laughs> 
anthropologists report, you know, they're they're they have their uh, they're staying in the community and they report even trying to wire up their little hut so that they can type their because they stay up late and type or write their notes. And then, um, but the, the community assumes they want to be with them. So they all show up at three in the morning and start chatting. <laughs> Break, they'll get away around the door. They can't imagine that you're trying to keep them out. Yeah. It's just so inconceivable. They'll walk with you to the forest when you're going to, you know, uh, pee. Believe yourself. <laughs> does, oh man, that makes me think of the biphasic sleep studies and the people being awake in the middle of the night. And I just imagine this like researcher is trying feverishly thinking that, of course, you know, our Western idea of sleep is like eight hours where you're just out. And that's not actually what um, sleep studies. That's not are. normal. Nope, that's, it's not normal. Industrialism. That's yep. industrialism. Yep. Made into that. Yeah. Yep. And so this indigenous is like, oh, he's he's awake. <laughs> like I'll go, or she is awake. Let me go. Let me go be with them. They must be so lonely awake in the middle. Right. Of the like, yeah. and I I love this idea of <laughs> the Westerner like not not getting enough sleep, not taking good care of themselves, <laughs> and like trying to work in isolation. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, so that's embodied stuff, right? So the vagus nerve will be implicated, the oxytocin system, uh, various systems are going to be related to whether you feel pleasure with others or not. And so part of my healing suggestions to people is first, you got to calm yourself down because all of us got, uh, we're too anxious because of our undercare in babyhood. So you have to practice belly breathing, yoga, whatever it is that help find the thing that helps you calm down and then recognize when you're starting to get uncalm, right? Your jaw is tightening or whatever and take that step. <gasps> Belly breathe, right? And that's the first thing to getting back to our capacities. The second thing is to develop social joy, to find ways to learn to enjoy being with others. So that would be folk dancing or uh, I use folk song games in my classes. <clears throat> and then after that, expand your imagination to ecological communal imagination. So those are the things that get us back to being human, <laughs> fully human. Anyway, well, we have a list. <laughs> I love it. I'm writing furiously. Because <laughs> um, there's so, this, I, I think this is the most notes I've ever taken in an episode while we're recording. I'm just like trying to keep up with the gems because there's a lot here um, that's so worth exploring. Um, and, and one of the things that I think is really worth exploring, um, I know you alluded to your book earlier, Indigenous Sustainable Wisdom, First Nation Know-How for Global Flourishing. And in that, one of, the, one of the ideas that you share is that embracing the Indigenous worldview is part of what we need to do to save our planet. Um, you just talked about healing suggestions. Can you talk about not only that idea of what it would mean to embrace the indigenous worldview, but also what that means for saving our planet. And then how, how do we do it? Please teach us, <laughs> Dr. Darsha. <laughs> well, we've been focusing on the psychological part, right? So you have to help people get back to being a centered human being and attend it to that, which ideally is happening in a group, but you're not doing that all by yourself in your little room, you know, your little ivory tower, you're actually in a group building these skills of, you know, the other parts of the list are unconditional listening, to learn how to do that, to have a communal orientation, to be egalitarian, because that it's the old systems, the primate systems that want you to, you know, dominate, right, or submit because you're, you know, to feel safe. Right, that's not our heritage as human beings. We went into egalitarianism and then to have respect for future generations, for your ancestors, and feeling responsibility towards the web of life. So that's all individual stuff, right? <clears throat> now, at the social level, the policy level, we've got to get the people who have this open indigenous perspective in charge. They, they get caught up in this in keeping the system going and the system's killing us, <laughs> but they don't pay attention to that information, right? Because again, the left brain, and if you're detached from your emotions and from your relational responsibilities, which is what we encourage in schools, in Western schools, don't think about the bird out the window. Don't think about how you're feeling. Just learn this information and pass the test, right? So socio-emotional intelligence is pretty low in people who are really smart. 
And then you've got the other people who are all anxious and not, not paying attention, the anxious attached, uh, anxiously attached people, right? They don't think very well, but they really get mad and make a big scene like our president um, because they get attention and they live on that. That's how they got their needs met. When I got to laugh a little because by the time this episode goes up, he won't be our president anymore. Yes, the ex-president, yeah, soon to be ex. Um, so yeah, there's the individual level to uh, when I give talks uh, with PowerPoint, I point out the different ways you can intervene. So you want to provide the mess to the young so that they are uh, building the good, well-functioning brain. And so policies have to support that, like parental leave. We, one of the only two or three countries in the world that don't have paid parental leave after a baby's born. That has to do with racism and the resentment of whites against the others, you know, don't want them to have health care. So I don't want it. No, <laughs> that's the dying from whiteness book points that out. Uh, so we've got a lot of issues. So you can intervene and provide the mess to the young. Then you've got to intervene for kids who didn't have a good nest and help them build in the way I was talking about calmness, social joy, imagination that's communal. Adults too need that kind of intervention. And then the at the cultural level, we have to change our stories. We have to stop saying there's human progress or that we're better than every other creature on the earth or you know, technology will save us or you know, the, all those myths. <laughs> we have to get back to the indigenous worldview. And I have a book I'm writing, just finishing now with Four Arrows on indigenous worldview precepts. <clears throat> where we talk when will about, that be out? Uh, well, it'll be in the publisher's hands in a couple months uh, okay. that they'll so by the end of the year, maybe. Cool. Well, we'll just have to have you back then. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of things that you've just touched on that I'm trying to backtrack my own mind to. Um, I love this. Nope, the idea is gone. The train of thought has left the station. I am still standing on Sorry, the platform. <laughs> but I want to, no, don't ever apologize for that. You're, <laughs> I want to hand you as big of a microphone as I possibly can because I think you have so much to offer in so many different ways you know, you to me feel like an exemplar of this interdisciplinary idea that you are just talking about. Um, in, in some of what I have read on these concepts of indigenous worldview as a pathway to healing our planet and to healing our species, um, I've, I've picked up on some comments about the US biodiversity report and how it really is pointing to this set of ideas. Do you mind just unpacking that for a moment? Well, I think the if it's the IPBES report from 2019, it uh, indicated that the areas of the planet where biodiversity was doing well were the ones governed by indigenous communities. So they have this idea of being a bio community member that they're responsible that you know the tree or the the deer or the bear could be an is an ancestor is a kin kinsmen or kinswoman or kinfolk. And so they, they're not so, uh, they're not caught up in the, the ob subject object view of the world. They're, we're all subjects, we're all sentient. And so they have a greater respect for ecologies. Uh, the Koji in 1990, uh, this is a group in um, <clears throat> South America, the Colombian highlands, they escaped there after the Spanish came and, uh, and other, another native group chased them up into the mountains back hundreds of years ago. And they hadn't been seen until in the 1990s, they contacted the BBC and said, we want to tell the world that they have to, our younger brother needs to stop doing what they're doing. The mother, mother earth is crying, you're, you're, you're killing her. Uh, well, nothing much happened. So they, uh, 10 years later, they created their own movie, same kind of thing, Aluna. And uh, so there's just this uh, kind of a fever, like a gold fever, uh, Native Americans call it Wetico, uh, that has just taken over the minds of uh, white people in a way, at least it started there. And now it's spread all over the world where, you know, money, money, money is the first priority, uh, not well-being, not, uh, goodness, <laughs> not virtue. It's like money is the, the greed is just taken over. So Wetico is the cannibalizing of life. And that's what's happened with this unfettered capitalism. So capitalism, 
there needs to be something done about that and the, the inequality and the one percenters having so much power and uh, they're just sitting on it in banks, trillions and trillions of dollars sitting in banks. Come on, people. Why? The hoarding mindset. Yeah, it's yeah, capitalism it's for capitalism's sake, as opposed to what can be what can be done with it. What is the purpose? Why are we here? What are we right. doing? And the uh, nomadic foragers, uh, they were fiercely egalitarian. So when a hunter was successful and got a big animal or something, they would tease him and tease him and say, "Oh, it's so small. We should go back. Even a rabbit would be bigger." And they and they finally would laugh. Everyone would laugh. And uh, they, when they asked about why they did that, oh, he would get dangerous. So they had a sense that the ego, inflated ego is very dangerous and they would not allow it uh, to happen. And we have perpetuated it, right? We keep all these people going who are aggressive and self-centered. We create them and we think it's normal. So we don't know any better, right? <laughs> but now well, they're in charge. <laughs> and I would argue that uh, America is getting uh, a painful taste of the medicine of what aggressive ego when overfed um, it's funny, I've always pronounced it Wendigo. And so ah. it took me a second to pick up on. There's uh, uh, different ways to say it. Yeah, that's another way. Yeah, yeah uh, the, the, the Wendigo of, of capitalism for capitalism's sake. Um, but the, the train of thought did come back in the station. And it was, you mentioned primate studies and our, our primate cousins and um, this impulse that, um, that our primate brain wants to be hierarchical and fiercely competitive, but I've also read the counter to that being bonobo studies that get into a more egalitarian, uh, you know, calm, calmed nervous system connection. Um, some some have argued that it's even more uh, female-led pods or whatever. I don't know what you call a group of of primates. <laughs> um, but but that counter to what we're always told is like oh the, the the chimpanzee studies where they're they're fighting over food but we also create a scarcity economy in the baiting of the chimpanzees for those studies. Um, what do you think of that counter that like it actually is part of our primate hardwiring to be more egalitarian and it isn't just a human phenomenon. Well, I think uh, the, the um, actual sciencey stuff hasn't been worked out in terms of bonobos. Um, uh, Franz Duval said, uh, what would have happened if bonobos had been discovered first before chimpanzees? Because the, the assumption was, oh, that's our closest uh, cousin. Da, da, da. <clears throat> but apparently I've heard that they share a DNA, some DNA um, allele or, or um, some genetic portion we share with bonobos that we don't share with chimps. So when I talk about primate, I don't mean the apes so much as the, the other primates, uh, primate heritage. I'm, t I'm referring to Chris Baum's work, B-O-E-H-M, who documents in, in his book, Hierarchy in the Forest, uh, the shift away from the primate dominance hierarchies to this more egalitarian. And I don't remember now because it was before I knew really much about bonobos that I looked at his book. So, whether he talks about bonobos, probably not. So, but who knows? But I think it's a it's an open question now. Well, what is the difference there? Uh, and bonobos do um, carry their their offspring around longer than chimps, and uh, so there may be something about that too. The parenting, yeah, the epigenetics going on that the evolved nest for them also affects. Yeah. Well, and and for the listener, the epi epigenetics being gene expression, right? That that having a genetic marker is not necessarily the sentence of living out that genetic marker. You can be predisposed to diabetes and not develop diabetes based off of your life experience. And, and that ties directly back to where we started this concept of evolved nest that how you're expressing and not just over a lifetime, right? This can be through a decrease of stress in life, you know, lifestyle medicine application, we then see someone's biomarker shifting. Um, you know, you mentioned the vagus nerve a number of times. I think in a few episodes, we talk about heart rate variability as an indicator of, of chronic stress versus recovery. And, and so we're getting the technologies where, you know, a person with reasonable means can have these indicators in themselves. But I think one of the things that you're advocating for is understanding your embodied experience enough that you don't need an aura ring to tell you if you had a good night's sleep. You know that because you feel it in your physical body and you've learned enough about that in, you know, that experience 
to understand your own biofeedback without an externalized, you know, commodified mechanism. I say that as I wear my aura ring. So full ownership of that. <laughs> I like it. I like widgets. Um, so if let's point the listener to where they can find more of your work. So obviously I'll link to evolvenest.org. Um, where else, where else can we point them? Uh, my university website or my darshanarvais.com uh, and my book. I think a lot of these things we've been talking about are in here. So the neurobiology and development of human morality. So which will be all linked in the show notes. Okay. Uh, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you a million times. Uh, I think this has been a fascinating conversation. I know I'm quite pleased and I have so much more on my reading list now. Great. So wonderful to talk with you, Darlene. Thank you. Thank you.